Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. Now, I want to thank you guys, as always, for all of your support. Um, this episode is a little late in coming because I'm putting together a new Patreon page with some great uh, different levels and tiers of patronage. And so while I was trying to get that together and get the launch for that all together, um, I had to step back a little so that I could uh, put all my effort into that. So um, the new Patreon page that um, is going to be debuting with this episode um, starts with a $5 tier and you'll get access to Patreon-only posts and messages. And that first tier is called Encyclopedia Brown Boy Detective after the children's books. And the next tier at $10 or more a month is the Jessica Fletcher level, which is Jessica Fletcher from Murder, She Wrote. For those of you who don't know, um, she was a kind of a modern day Mrs. Marple. Um, she's an English teacher turned mystery writer who inadvertently um, kept running into murders and solving crimes. So with that Jessica Fletcher level, you'll get early access to content. So that explains why I pushed things back a little bit so I can make sure that I had some content for people at this level um, and Patreon only voting power. Um, I may put up polls to have people help me decide um, what uh, to look at in an episode, if I'm having trouble deciding what to do next. And then you go to the next tier. This is my favorite. One of my favorites, the Veronica Mars tier. tier. Um, obviously after Veronica Mars, the Kristen Bell show, about the teenage girl who worked at her father's detective agency and then eventually takes it over for herself. So you'll have access to a once monthly bonus podcast that's gonna be called Dumber Than a Sack of Hair and it is going to look into stupid crimes, whether it was a smart person who committed a dumb crime or a dumb person who inadvertently got away with a smart crime. We're gonna look at some of the stupider crimes out there, hence the name Dumber Than a Sack of Hair, and the full library of both those podcasts will be available to you. And then the last tier is $50 or more a month. That's the Hercule Poirot tier, world's greatest detective, um, in his own mind. A little less arrogant than uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so with the Hercule Poirot level, in addition to all the other things, the full library access, the uh, access to the Dumber Than a Sack of Hair podcast, and access to early content, you're also going to get a shout out on the podcast, a Psych Your Crime t-shirt. Um, so these are just uh, some stuff I wanted to do to help repay you guys uh, for being able to allow me to last this long and having someone to actually listen to my content. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Um, and to the New Zealand fans, I just started watching Broken Wood Mysteries. I know I'm behind by like six years. But uh, yeah, I, I, I would like Brandon's life. I, I want to be able to hang out and surf and fish and kind of chill. I, I, I'm still not exactly sure what he does. Is he like a jack of all trades? Is, is he just good at everything? When they need someone to act, he acts. When they need someone to taste wine, he tastes wine. And they need someone to garden, he gardens. Like, 
I, I'm, <laughs> I'm still not completely understanding what this dude's job is. Maybe if you want to message me on Twitter and, and help me understand why he's just so good at everything. Um, it's at Geekflossy on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to talk to me, some of you have reached out to me. Um, one thing someone did ask me is, um, have I ever done any, uh, anything that has been a Law and Order episode? Actually, I have. A few episodes ago, we did the Mormon uh, forger who forged documents and sold them to the Mormon church. And then to cover his tracks, he committed a bombing. There was a Law and Order Criminal Intent episode based on that crime where Stephen Colbert, of all people, played a forger who was forging religious documents to get back at a church. So um, that's the only one that I know of that um, has been the inspiration for a Law & Order episode. There could be more. I don't know. Um, but that's the only one I'm aware of. So let's dive into this week's crime. This week we're going to look at the cult of Yahweh Ben Yahweh. Uh, they go by the Church of Yahweh Ben Yahweh. Um, they were very, very active in the 80s and the 90s. Um, so one of the questions people tend to ask a lot um, when it comes to cults is what makes a cult leader bad or evil? Uh, and when is a cult leader dangerous to others? This um, is a question that should be based on the history of suffering and hurt caused by cult leaders around the world. Um, after FBI agent Joe Navarro studied at length on the life teachings and behaviors of people like Jim Jones, uh, Jim Jones, who is responsible for Jonestown, David Koresh, the Branch Davidians, Stuart Trail, the Church of Bible Understanding, Charles Manson, Shoka Ashuru, um, who's responsible for Ayam Shrinirico, Shrin, 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 I know I, I pronounced that so wrong, uh, Joseph de Mambro, the Order of the Solar Temple, or the Order du Temple Solaire, Marshall Hef Applewhite, which is responsible for Heaven's Gate, Bhagwan Ranish, the Ranish Movement, and Warren Jeffs, um, he was a polygamist uh, sect leader. Uh, what he feels stands out about these individuals is that they are all pathological narcissists. They all have or had overabundant belief that they are special, that they and they alone have the answers to the world's problems, that they need to be revered for this. They demand perfect loyalty from their followers. They overvalue themselves and devalue those around them. They are not tolerant of criticism. And above all, they do not like being questioned or challenged. But in spite of these less than charming traits, they still had no trouble attracting people who were willing to overlook this. But this is also true of abusive relationships. You can see many behaviors in red flags and still be willing to overlook them because you believe in the person. And with cults, it's about people wanting to believe in the work, sometimes not necessarily the leader themselves. These personality traits stand out as a warning to those who would associate with them, um, but there are a lot of other ones. So I've gone through um, Navarro's work and I've collected a list of traits of cult leaders that give us a hint into their psychopathology. 
And remember, this list isn't inclusive. This isn't everything. If you know of a cult leader who has many of these traits, there's a high probability that they are hurting those around them emotionally, psychologically, physically, spiritually, or financially. And of course, it does not take into account the hurt that their loved ones will also experience. Here are typical traits of a pathological cult leader that you should watch for. And this is from Navarro's book, Dangerous Personalities. One, he or she has a grandiose idea of who he is and what he or she can achieve. And yes, there are female cult leaders. Is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, or brilliance. Demands blind, unquestioned obedience. Requires excessive admiration from followers and outsiders. Uh, five, has a sense of entitlement, expecting to be treated special at all times. Six, is exploitive of others by asking for their money or that of friends and family and putting them at financial risk. Seven, is arrogant and haughty in their behavior or attitude. Eight, has an exaggerated sense of power that allows them to bend rules and break laws. Nine, takes sexual advantage of members of the sect or cult. Ten, sex is a requirement with adults and sub-adults as part of rituals or rites. By sub-adults, they mean young adults and sometimes children, that's sub-adults. Eleven is hypersensitive to how they are seen or perceived by others. Twelve, publicly devalues others as being inferior, incapable, or not wor worthy. Thirteen, makes members confess their sins or faults publicly, subjecting them to ridicule or humiliation while reveling in exploiting their weaknesses. 14, has ignored the needs of others, including biological, physical, emotional, and financial needs. And this goes to cults where you'll see the leaders uh, living lavish lifestyles while the cult members often tend to be living in poverty. 15, frequently boasts of their accomplishments. 16, needs to be the center of attention and does things to distract to ensure that they are being noticed. Arrive late, use exotic clothes, overdramatic speech, making giant theatrical entrances, uh, things like that. 17, has insisted on always having the best of everything. Houses, cars, jewelry, clothes. Even when others are relegated to lesser facilities, amenities, or clothing. This goes back to ignoring the needs of others. Um, like I said, they have the nice house, the nice car, and then the people in the cult that are responsible for bringing in this money, many of them live in abject poverty. 18, doesn't seem to listen well to the needs of others. Communication is usually one way in the form of dictates. 19, haughtiness, grandiosity, and the need to be controlling is part of their personality. 20, behaves as though people are objects to be used, manipulated, or exploited for personal gain. 21, when criticized, they tend to lash out, not just with anger, but with rage. 22, anyone who criticizes or questions them is the enemy. And we're going to see that in this podcast. Uh, 24, acts imperious at times, not wishing to know what others think or desire. 25, believes himself to be omnipotent or having powers 
um, all knowing you'll see a lot of calls so people say they're the return of christ um things such as that 26 has magical answers or solutions to problems a really good example of that is uh the ant heel gang uh roche thoreau he kept predicting the end times giving exact dates and then when it didn't happen his answer was god experiences time different than us and that's why the apocalypse has not happened yet. It, I was going by God's time, not our time. So things like that. Uh, magical answer. Magical answer. God has a different sense of time than us. 27 is superficially charming. 28 habitually puts down others as inferior. Only the cult leader is the superior being. No one else is as good as them. 29 has a certain coldness or aloofness about them that makes others worry about who this person really is and whether they really do know them or not 30 is deeply offended when they are perceived uh, when they see signs of boredom and they think they're being ignored or possibly slighted because they don't have your undivided attention 31 treats others with contempt and arrogance 32 is constantly assessing people to determine those who are a threat and those who love them. 33, the word I dominates their conversations. Uh, they'll be like, I am the way. I am the one. Not we are the way. We are the ones. And you will see there are those distinctions. Sometimes there are cults who use that very inclusive language. We... Um, uh, putting all the onus on the work as uh, us as the group mentality but the cult leader makes it about themselves 34 hates to be embarrassed or fail publicly when they do they act out with rage 35 doesn't seem to feel guilty for anything they've done wrong nor do they ever apologize for their actions 36 believes they possess the answers to the world's problems 37, believes themselves to be a deity, our chosen representative of a deity. Um, we see this often. People say that they are uh, the second coming of Christ. People say that they, um, God spoke to them, that uh, they saw them. So this actually happens quite a bit. Uh, 38, rigid, unbending, or insensitive describes how this person thinks. 39, tries to control others in what they do, read, view, or think. 40 has isolated members of their sect from contact with the family or the outside world. Now, this is huge because there are, are multiple cults that actually started out as harmless self-help groups. And it wasn't until they made the jump to isolating people from contact with friends and family that the cult-like behavior started. Um, so... That's a, a real huge distinction, and usually that's when the line starts to get crossed. 41, monitors or restricts contact with family. 42, works the least but demands the most. 43, has stated that they are destined for greatness or they will be a martyr. 44, seems to be highly dependent on tributes and adoration and will often fish for compliments. 45, uses enforcers or sycophants to ensure compliance from members or believers. We have seen this. Um, I 
don't want to specifically call out a group it's happened over and over again to multiple ones but currently there is a very famous group obviously scientology who's been accused of sending kind of enforcers to um silence people who have left the church 46 see self as unstoppable and perhaps even said so 47 conceals background or family which would disclose how plain and ordinary they really are. 48 doesn't think there's anything wrong with themselves and sees themselves as perfect or blessed. 49 has taken away followers freedom to leave, to travel, to pursue life and liberty. So you see this a lot in compound situations. And the reason that they build compounds is in order to help isolate them from friends and family even further but also because it makes it very difficult for people to leave for people to escape the group and uh, move on At 50 has isolated the group physically this is what i was talking about the compounds so going to a compound um, it also keeps them from being observed keeps the police from being in their business um, and so this is also a giant red flag when the whole group is made to move someplace isolated away from uh, the rest of society. Now, one thing that many people don't understand about cults is that the beliefs and structure of the cult evolved to meet the needs of the leadership. So as the cult leader changes, the beliefs will change. A good example of this is Tony Alamo Ministries. They had multiple restaurants and members who worked for low pay and no overtime. The establishments folded when they were forced to meet labor law requirements. After the family matriarch and face of the spiritual side of things passed away, Alamo became completely unhinged. He eventually opened a business selling bedazzled jean jackets using child labor. I don't know if any of y'all are old enough to remember this, but if you look it up, you can see the Tony Alamo. They were um, airbrushed and bedazzled jean jackets. People like Mike Tyson, all kinds of celebrities had them. They were like a big deal. Um, now he used child labor and when the children didn't make their quotas he would implement public group corporal punishments uh, for the children that didn't make their work quarters or misbehaved and this eventually uh, de-evolved into sexual abuse of teenage girls within the groups none of these things would have happened had his wife still had been alive so the cult's entire mission and what they stood for changed as the matriarch died and the patriarch took over and started to run things. Another major misconception is that once abusive or dangerous cult leaders are jailed or die, that that's the end of the cult. Most of the times it's not. Uh, while many people join cults because of charismatic leaders, others join because they believe in the core values the cult is supposed to be supporting. The quote unquote true believers keep cults going long after scandals and even jail time has tarnished their name. A great example is the children of God. They practice child sex on an international level. This version of the church ended officially with cult leader David Burke's death in 1994, when the church made sexual contact with minors an excommunicable offense. Currently, they are known as the Family International and still have roughly 10,000 members in almost 90 countries. So they're still going. They just have a very different set of beliefs. And it's like I said before, the beliefs and uh, 
of the church, they change and evolve to fit the leadership. So now that the leadership is different, the beliefs and the structure of the cult has evolved to remove the child's sex abuse and be more of a Christian faith, faith organization, strictly. Um, and so that's about the evolution, but also they're still going, even though that the original leader has since passed on. Uh, the other, so this, we're going to talk about the Church of Yahweh Ben Yahweh, the church's leader, Hulan Mitchell Jr., who was born on October 27, 1935, to a family affiliated with the Antioch Church of God in Christ in Enid, Oklahoma. His father, Hulan Mitchell Sr., was a minister, and his mother, Pearl, was the church pianist. After leaving Oklahoma, Mitchell joined the military, then attended law school. Mitchell moved to Atlanta, and in the 1960s, he joined the Nation of Islam, where he took the name of Hulan X. He left the Nation of Islam in the late 60s. Mitchell then became a faith-healing preacher named Father Mitchell. Mitchell fashioned himself after the character of Father Divine and Samuel Father Jehovah Morris, African-American ministers of the early 20th century who preached themselves as divine connections to God. Mitchell arrived in Miami in 1978. Once there, he gathered congregants from the city's black Hebrew Israelite faith and declared himself the Black Messiah, starting up the nation of Yahweh. So Yahweh ben Yahweh means son of the sun. So he was saying he was the son of Christ, son of the sun. And as the son of Christ, he was the divine on earth. And so that is what drew people in. Yahweh was able to draw people from the black community by love bombing, a very disenfranchised community. They had issues with police violence. There were riots. They lived in communities that were not receiving the same amount of resources as other more white affluent communities. Between the love bombing and the messages of self-love in a time when racism was still very palpable, it was very easy for Yahweh and Yahweh to gain followers quickly. After the Miami riots, the Yahwehs opened a small soap-making soap business. They made soaps and lotions and then refurbished an old burnt-out grocery store to make it nice. It had fresh produce. It had more healthy and affordable options for people in this rundown community. With this money and donations from followers, Yahweh was able to invest in real estate in Liberty City, an area considered to be a ghetto. By improving this community, they drew nationwide attention and followers. One of them was Robert Rozier, a former NFL linebacker who became an enforcer for the cult. Now, I'm not really going to go in depth into Robert Rozier, but if you would like to hear more about him in depth, what drove him to the cult and his time in the cult, um, check out episode 11 of Crime and Sports podcast. Um, it takes a very long look at him specifically, his career in sports, what drove him to become a member of the Yahweh's. Um, it's a funny uh, podcast. I love the guys. I've seen them live. Um, I think that, uh, so if you want to hear more about just Robert, go and check that out. One thing that Yahweh preached was that sex was something you should only do to make a child. Anything beyond that and you were weak-willed. What many followers soon learned is that this belief did not apply to Yahweh bin Yahweh himself. 
as he was sleeping with several of his female followers, both single and married. So it became clear that this change in the cult's attitude was something only served the leader by giving him unfettered access to all the women in the cult. Around this time, the church began to expand with temples in cities such as Atlanta, Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore, St. Louis, Houston, Dallas, Newark, and Cleveland. Many of the men who went to open these new temples spent almost a year away from home and would come back to find their wives living with Yahweh, and in some cases, pregnant with his children. So this is when division began within the temple and the church. Yahweh had demanded that members give all their earnings to the church, and many were not happy with this. They wanted something of their own. So a member, Carlton Carey, decided to break away and start his own version of the church with his wife. When they left, they took some of the followers with them. Yahweh ben Yahweh declared them hypocrites and was looking for revenge. Shortly after this is when the first murder occurred. Ashton Green was found beheaded in a rock pit in the Florida Everglades. Ashton lived with Carlton, who had been labeled a hypocrite by Yahweh ben Yahweh. So Ashton and his wife, excuse me, Carlton and his wife went to the police saying that they knew who had killed Ashton. When they came home from the police, people were waiting for them in their house. Carlton was shot and killed and his wife Mildred was shot and stabbed in the neck with a machete. Miraculously, she survived but was unable to identify her attackers. As the Yahwehs made great improvements to the community, they began to get recognized by local politicians, with Yahweh ben Yahweh even receiving a key to the city and having a day declared Yahweh ben Yahweh Day. By this point, the cult was a quarter of a billion dollar business. The members were going on a quota system in which they were each required to get at least $10 in donations a day. But since they had oversaturated their Miami community so much, it was becoming more and more difficult. Members who didn't make their quotas were sent to what was called the Room of Understanding. They were made to kneel before anywhere for two hours to two days, and any sign that you were shaking or having trouble staying on your knees, and you'd be beaten with a stick. Yahweh ben Yahweh then began trying to expand the Miami branch into Delray Beach, an extremely poor black neighborhood. The locals, however, were not having any of it, and actually chased the Yahwehs from the neighborhood while they were trying to go door to door to get donations. So imagine this. Imagine that you are incredibly poor. You live in a tenement type of uh, government subsidized building, a neighborhood that heavily has people who are extremely poor, living paycheck to paycheck, if even that. Um, and you have people coming to your door and asking you for money for their religious organization that you also are aware are trying to buy up your neighborhood. So I think I get it. They're angry. They think these people are trying to come in and take over their neighborhood. And one thing about the Yahweh's is they did not believe in prostitution or drug use. So the neighborhoods that they did move in, the places they did buy real estate, they used force to chase the drug dealers and uh, the prostitutes and the pimps out. So in those areas, crime did drop, kind of, because I don't know that you can consider crime dropping if you commit crime to reduce crime. So it feels like crime maybe stayed the same, but 
they kind of wanted to pretend the Yahwehs were not committing crimes. So what happened after they chased them from their, their neighborhood, the next day someone firebombed the complex that they were chased out of. In this firebombing, a newborn died. The mother actually said that she realized the apartment was on fire, she went into the bedroom, and the baby's crib was engulfed in flames with the child in it. The firebomb had like literally like hit the crib on the way in the window and the child just went up immediately. Now, this is what got the FBI's attention. After this firebombing, many former Melters, former members felt guilty and started coming forward to law enforcement. One detailed a beating he saw of Ashton Green uh, taken at the hands of Yahweh Ben Yahweh's security detail which were called the Death Angels. FBI believes what he witnessed was not a simple beating, but Ashton's actual murder. This is also the time frame in which Robert Rosier became heavily involved in the church. In September of 1986, a man named Raymond Kelly was found murdered in the backseat of his car in South Miami. He had been stabbed to death and, one, and both of his ears were cut off. One ear was found on the ground outside his car while the other was completely gone, nowhere to be found. The police went through the database to see if there were any similar crimes, and two months before, there were two almost identical murders of white men. At first, they believed they had a serial killer. Then the Yahwehs had purchased a group of apartments in Okalaka. They immediately began trying to illegally evict the tenants through force. They broke into several apartments and threw people's belongings onto the street. They basically were forcefully moving them out whether they wanted to go or not, or at least trying to. Two of the tenants sought legal counsel. They went and got a legal aid lawyer, and she was in the process of drafting a motion to force an injunction against the Yahwehs to make them stop trying to force the tenants out, many of whom had nowhere else to go. Two, this became national TV news. It was all over the place. And two of the tenants went on TV and stated they would not move unless they were served an eviction notice. Now, if any of you own real estate or know anything about how it works in the United States, in the United States, even if you assume a property, um, purchase it from someone. If someone's on a lease, you must honor the lease of the person that the person had with the people that you purchased the property from. So you can't just buy a building with the idea that you're gonna tear it down and start over if there's still people in there who may have a year or some of them sign multi-year leases. You have to wait till all their leases are up. You can offer them a buyout if they don't take it. It is what it is. You must wait till their lease is up. Um, so in an eviction proceeding in the United States, how it works is you give them what's called a notice to quit, which is like a warning that they're about to be evicted. You usually, for this type, you would say, send a 30-day notice to quit, explain that your lease is going to be up at the end of 30 days. And at that point, the apartment needs to be vacated because you're, you know, going to change the, the way the apartment works, to change management, whatever. You give them the notice to quit at the end of the 30 days if they haven't vacated the premises then you can file in court for a legal eviction. Once you file those papers, that you then they assign a court. You get them like a warning letter. It says um, it's usually 14 days to respond with your side of why you didn't vacate the premises to the court clerk. And then you go to court. 
if you don't show up by default, the landlord is granted an eviction. And then you have 30 days from that date to get out before the sheriff or the deputies, it depends on each state's different. It could be constables before they come and forcibly remove you from the apartment because at that point, legally, you're trespassing. So this is a process that can take minimum about three months and it can take longer if uh, the person shows up in court and they have reasons and they decide to side with them and give them a chance. So you could be there for quite a minute. Like you could be, it could take six months, sometimes even up to a year to evict someone from a property, which is why they didn't want to go that way. It is also incredibly expensive to do. So when these two tenants had gotten a lawyer, they knew they were going to have problems. Now, these two tenants that had gotten the lawyer, like I said, they went on TV and made a big deal about the fact that they were not going nowhere until they were served a legal eviction notice. So literally the next day after they were seen on TV saying they're, they're not one of them, his, his exact quote was, I ain't going nowhere till I get an eviction notice. I got to do nothing. That's literally his exact words in the interview. So the next day, Anthony Brown and Rudy Broussard were shot by the Yahwehs. It was made to look like, at least it was supposed to look by a drive-by. Um, in the audio footage of the call, people are calling one of the calls and they're saying, there's been a shooting. I'm not sure who's been shot. All I know is there are Yahweh's all over the place and they're confusing people and we don't know what happened. So the police went to investigate uh, the scene and they found Robert Rosier hiding in the woods with two guns that turned out to be the guns used in the shooting. One of the guns was taken from Raymond Kelly's car when he was murdered. This then ties three murders to the shooting. Robert Rosier immediately confesses to everything, including the Delray Beach firebombing. Rosier claimed that Yahweh Ben Yahweh wanted white devils murdered for each black life they felt they lost. To this day, many Yahwehs are convinced Rosier acted alone and lied about Yahweh Ben Yahweh's involvement. As Yahweh bin Yahweh told his followers that Rosier had been kicked out of the temple before the shooting. Yahweh bin Yahweh went on the offensive, letting press into the temple for the first time, where he held several press conferences. Janet Reno was the attorney general of Florida at the time. If you don't know who Janet Reno was, she went on to become the attorney general of the entire United States. So as a politically minded person, she was hesitant to prosecute due to Yahweh Ben Yahweh's community ties. They were finally able to make a racketeering case against Yahweh Ben Yahweh when they discovered he was having female followers commit welfare fraud and donate all of the cash benefits to the temple. The FBI arrested him in New Orleans while he was on a speaking tour. The trial was for racketeering and conspiracy to commit murder. He was convicted of conspiracy for which he got 18 years, but was acquitted of the racketeering charges. But as soon as his trial ended, he was then, this is an FBI case, a federal case. As soon as the trial ended, he was arrested by the state police and charged by the state for murder. So the state of Florida went after him for murder. 
Robert Rosier was the star witness. However, he had severe credibility issues. They found old roommates that said that in college, he was, his nickname was Robert the Liar. And so this issue with his credibility led to Yahweh ben Yahweh being acquitted. To this day, Yahweh ben Yahweh's daughter and many members believed, once again, like he was preaching before, that Robert Rosier um, was used to frame him by the police. So he did end up serving time for the federal conviction. He was given early parole and was diagnosed with cancer almost immediately after he got out and ended up dying within a year at the age of 71. After the trial, many of the properties in the real estate empire were sold to help pay for multiple lawsuits. The cult folded in on itself, but there is still a handful of followers who follow the new leader, Yahweh ben Yahweh ben Yahweh. So the son of the son of the son, which doesn't make sense because um, they were originally taught by Yahweh ben Yahweh that he was the one true prophet. There is no other, there will be no other. So this goes back to beliefs changing to fit the needs of the leadership. Now, next time, we're going to look into the murder of Jorin Lundblad, a millionaire Swedish landowner whose disappearance would still be unsolved to this day if it wasn't for his son-in-law's erratic behavior. Now, I hope you join me then. And in the meantime, hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.